Good morning, brothers and sisters. How are we doing? I want to tell you guys this morning that it is a joy to be able to worship our risen Savior together. Uh, I, I, I just love getting to know everyone that I've met so far, and if I haven't gotten to meet you, hopefully we get some time to chit-chat after service. Uh, particularly, I'm really encouraged by how well you guys sing as a congregation. Uh, our church, we have, you know, uh, 61 members, and oftentimes we sing louder as a church than, I've, I've been in rooms where there are 300 people, and they don't sing as loud as we do with 60, and so as soon as the music began and you guys began to lift up your voices to God, I was like, ah, it feels like I'm at home, right? Uh, good long prayers, which we love in our church, uh, long passages of scripture reading, that brother with that prayer, oh, you served us so well with that. I felt like I was being drawn down into the, the pit of despair with my sin, and then you raised us back up with that assurance of pardon. Or God raised us back up with that assurance of pardon. Uh, and even now, I just, if, if today is anything like yesterday, I know that everyone's heart is going to be attuned uh, to God's word, ready to receive all that, that God has for us this morning. Amen? Amen? All right. Our text this morning, if you want to just go ahead and turn there in advance, is going to be in 1 Thessalonians. Uh, I say that because uh, I've been a pastor for a long time now and a Christian for even longer, and that's one of those books that I still kind of have trouble finding <laughs> from time to time. So I want to make sure that we can all be there together. Okay. So uh, I do CrossFit. You know that I do CrossFit because as soon as I walk in the room, I tell everyone. And, but I'm not, a, I'm not a vegan, right? So I'm doing, I'm doing good. Now in the sport of CrossFit, uh, there's a kind of, we, we do something called the workout of the day, okay? And that's sometimes in the acronym form, a WOD, all right? And there are different kinds of wads that you can do in, in CrossFit, and one of them is called a hero wad. Now, a hero wad is usually dedicated to fallen servicemen, firefighters, police officers, uh, first responders of various kinds. And these hero wads, they're programmed to be brutal, you know, just awful, difficult workouts. The purpose behind the brutality is that they're trying to help CrossFitters understand what it must have been like to be that fallen serviceman, to be that police officer, to be that firefighter that was rushing up the stairs of, you know, Tower 2 when it fell down. What it must have been like to be that Navy SEAL to engage in a firefight after the end of a three-day march through the mountains of Taliban, uh, excuse me, through the mountains of Afghanistan, engaging with t the Taliban uh, when really there's nothing left in the tank. Hero workouts are designed to make you want to quit. But you can't quit. The worst hero workout for me personally is one called Murph. Uh, it's named after a Navy SEAL who died fighting the Taliban in Afghanistan. And most CrossFitters do it every Memorial Day as a way to pay homage to all those who have given their life in the service of this great country. Let me tell you a little bit about the workout, okay? You ready? One mile run. And like most of us in the room are like, yeah, that's really hard. Right, but it doesn't stop there. One mile run, 100 pull-ups, 200 push-ups, 300 squats, and then you got to go run another mile. And uh, you do all this with a 20-pound weighted vest. Okay. It is horrendous. It is terrible. Every year I do it, I like almost go into a heat stroke 
you know, even the years that I really prepare for it and I really train and I'm like, this is going to be my year. I still just, I'm on the ground afterwards. I can barely move. It's, it's horrendous. Now, for me, the urge to quit when I'm doing Murph, it comes about a third of the way through the workout, right when I'm around 100 pull-ups or so. I just want to quit. And that feeling of wanting to quit, it never goes away for the rest of the workout. It's just a true test of mental fortitude and physical grit. Now, when you're doing a hero workout, you're supposed to be thinking. You're supposed to be taking this time not just to suffer for suffering's sake. You're supposed to be meditating on those who have fallen. You're supposed to remember their courage, remember their fortitude, reflect on their determination. And I do that sometimes. But whenever I do Murph, I end up thinking more about my experience of the Christian life. I think about my journey of faith. I end up thinking about how difficult it is to walk the path of holiness in a fallen world. Where it feels like so much of this life is trying to make me quit. Walk away from the God who saved me. Sometimes, as we're trying to be faithful to Jesus, we just want to give up. It just feels like it's too hard. This workout is too long. We ask ourselves questions like, how can I remain sexually pure in a pornified culture? How can I prioritize time with God in a society that's always on the go? How can I battle my anxiety when it seems like this world is pressing in on me from every angle? Three quarters of the way through Murph, right, somewhere around the middle of the 300 air squats, I just want to take my vest off. I want to sit down in the shade, pour water all over my head, and just give up. And sometimes that's how we feel about our sanctification. When we are in the middle of the fight, we just want to stop fighting. We don't want to have to keep going. We want to just let the world take over. This morning's text is all about being found holy and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's about making it to the end of the workout. And like the end of a long CrossFit workout, sometimes that day, the day that the Lord comes back and takes us home and we don't have to fight anymore, that day just seems so far away. Sometimes we just feel so tired. So then what hope do we have? Finishing a CrossFit workout, here... Here's the thing about that. It depends on me. 100%. Utterly. It depends on me. People can cheer me on. They can bring me water. They can fan me to try to cool me down. They can even shame me to try to get me to keep going again. But at the end of the day, finishing the workout is up to me. I either have it in me as an athlete, and I like to think that I do, or I don't. But no one can carry me across the finish line. No one can lift my body up and make me do another pull-up. I have to make it across in my own strength. Well, friends, the good news that I have for you this morning is that our sanctification is not like that at all. According to this morning's text, our ability to make it to heaven depends ultimately on God. So let's read the text together, and then we'll pray. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We'll be reading verses 23 through 28. 
Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And let's just read the rest for context. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. It is completely sufficient for every good thing that we need in this life. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we need you to be here with us present today. We need your Holy Spirit to be active in our hearts. Open the eyes of our hearts, Lord. Allow us to perceive the fullness of glory that you have for us in this gospel. Help us to have hearts that not only are able to receive your word, but that are desirous of receiving your word. Father God, change us today. May we not leave this room the same way that we came into it. Make us more like Jesus, and in his name we pray. Amen. All right. By the way, this portion of the building is not going to collapse anytime soon, no? <laughs> just checking. Just checking. By now, you guys have all learned to ignore it. I just want to make sure, do I need to like start moving women and children to the... <laughs> So uh, I don't know if you guys know this guy, uh, the guy where no matter, no matter what, you're having a conversation with him, and it could very well be a her, but you're having a conversation with him, and he always finds a way to shift the conversation back to himself. doesn't matter what you're talking about. He can find a way to bring it back to him, and the conversation is me, 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 and I, 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 and you're trying to tell a story about your grandkids, and he goes, well, isn't that interesting? Let me tell you about me. This is the guy who just perceives the world and processes all of his social events through the me-centered lens. Well, I think that's a pretty good analogy for how a lot of us have learned to read our Bibles, right? We have learned to read our Bibles through the self-centered lens, the me-centered lens. And when we read the Bible in this way, uh, the story of David and Goliath is not really about God using this man David to conquer the enemies of God's people. It becomes a story about us and how we can conquer whatever Goliath is in our life. When we read our Bible through the me-centered lens, we don't read the Lord's Prayer as a prayer that's been given to the church, to God's people, that they might pray together, you know, give us this day our daily bread, right? It's give me this day my daily bread. With this kind of me-centered way of reading the Bible, we can come to a text like this morning's text. And we can fail to see that this text is really more about God than it is about us. If you read this morning's text with a me-centered lens, you'll think this text is all about me being found holy when the Lord comes back. And like most things that are wrong, it's, it's almost right. That is an almost accurate way to read this text because in some sense it is about you being found holy and blameless. When Paul was writing to the Thessalonians, he was very much concerned that they be found holy and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But, really, this morning's text is a benediction. It's where Paul reads a blessing over his people. And he's encouraging the Thessalonians in their sanctification by pointing them back to God. His nature and attributes. And he says, you can have confidence in your sanctification, not because of you, but because of the God that has saved you. 
And so it is about us, but only insofar as our experience is ultimately being pointing, uh, is pointing us back to God himself. So in this morning's sermon, I want you to know at the outset, I'm less concerned with showing you how God will make you holy for the last day, and I am more concerned with helping you cling to the promise that God will make you holy for the last day. So with that in mind, note takers, here you go. Four points, four points. I'll say them twice. The God of peace, point number one. The God of holiness, point number two. The God who keeps, point number three. The God of power, point number four. The God of peace, the God of holiness, the God who keeps, and the God of power. Point number one, the God of peace. Uh, As Paul begins this benediction, you can see right there in the text, he refers to God as the God of peace. This is the God who will make you holy on the day of Christ's return, the God of peace. Now, this is an interesting way for Paul to speak of the Lord. Why does he call him the God of peace? Why not the God of wrath? Why not the God of holiness? He's addressing their personal holiness. Why doesn't he say, you want to be holy? Well, don't worry. The God of holiness will make you holy for the last day. Why not the God of sovereignty? You know, he's in control. Don't worry. You'll be holy on the last day. Why not the God of sovereignty? Well, in the Bible... When you study the peace of God, you'll see that it's closely related to the comfort and order of God's people. You can see this by way of contrast, if you, uh, you know, the, the contrast between peace and disorder, and just reading the way Paul writes in other places. So, for example, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33, Paul says this, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Right, so there's that contrast, peace disorder, peace, confusion, right? And when you think about the nature of what confusion is, confusion is when things are robbed of their peace, right? Confusion creates chaos, and chaos robs us of that peace that we should have. Now, the Thessalonian church, it is having to deal with chaos in a very real way. They are in the midst of some significant confusion, Right? They're enduring persecution from outside of the church. If you remember, if you can like to go back and read like Acts 19, the story of what's happening there with the church at Thessalonica, they're really going through it. Paul was persecuted while he was there. He had to move on. He's heard that they're still suffering persecution while, while he's gone. They're handling it well, but they still have to deal with it. On top of that, they're having to deal with doctrinal issues from within, Right? Has Jesus already come back? Did we, did we miss the resurrection? What about all those people who died? And did, did, they, did they miss the boat? What's happening with them? On top of all that, they just have to deal with the normal junk of being a Christian, right? Putting your sin to death, figuring out how to follow Jesus faithfully in the everyday aspects of your life. How do I apply the gospel to being a mom, to being a dad? So they have these you know, issues from outside of the church, doctrinal issues within the church, plus just the normal junk that comes along with trying to figure out how to be a faithful Christian in a fallen world, and they are not at peace. Now, if you were to put yourself in Paul's shoes for a moment, 
If you were pastoring a church like this and you wanted to encourage them, you wanted to strengthen them, you wanted to challenge them, to exhort them, to continue to fight for holiness, don't give up, keep going, how might you approach them? What, what might you say? What kind of counsel would you give and, and how would you deliver that counsel? Would you come in like a drill sergeant, you know, get up, dust yourself off, keep going, go, go, go. My drill sergeants weren't that nice, by the way. Would you maybe come in like a seminary professor, you know, with a bunch of big words and cleverly articulated arguments, some really high-level Bible studies, syllogisms and such? You know, I, I bet that if you were a wise pastor, you, you might just find a way to help these people anchor their fight for sanctification in the gospel. More specifically, you might try to help these people anchor their fight for sanctification in the nature of God himself. You might remind the people that although they are in the midst of turmoil, although they are experiencing confusion and chaos, the God who has called them is in his very nature a God of peace. God is holy. We know that. And we, we, when we read our Bibles, we see the same refrain over and over again from the beginning all the way to the end. God says, I am holy. I'm calling you to myself. I will be your God. You will be my people. Therefore, you be holy even as I am holy. Well, in the same way, friends, God is a God of peace. And when he calls us to himself out of this world of confusion and chaos, he calls us into his peace. He calls us to himself, and when he does, he calms the storm. He delivers the oppressed. He conquers the enemy. He quells the chaos. That's why Paul calls God the God of peace. Let me give you another example of where Paul uses this title, and he does it in a very unexpected way. Just listen to the way that Paul uses this same title in Romans 16:20. He says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. This is like the kind of verse that like, I want to use when I'm teaching like a group of like 9 and 10 year old boys. What are we going to talk about today? Crushing Satan. Who's excited, right? Now, why does Paul call God the God of peace in this context? Again, it just feels kind of weird. I mean... We're talking about crushing Satan. Why not call him the God of victory, right? Doesn't that seem a little bit more appropriate? Why not call him the Lord of hosts as he is so often referred to? The title he has uh, is used so much of him in the Old Testament. You know, the Lord of hosts is like the commander of the angelic army, right? The, the general. Why not refer to him in that way? Well, because Paul here is communicating the idea that God will destroy that which is robbing his people of peace. He will destroy Satan, and when he does destroy the adversary, you can once again enter into a state of peace. This is exactly what Paul is saying to the Thessalonians in this benediction, and it is exactly what God is saying to you, brothers and sisters, this morning. So be hopeful. Lay your anxieties to rest. The God of peace has given you peace through Jesus Christ. 
And he will fully realize that peace within you when he takes you home to be with him in his perfect peace forever. Friends, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I know what it's like to be in your shoes. Many people in this room probably grew up in the church. I did not. I grew up in an environment of pure and unadulterated chaos. It was all I ever knew until Jesus saved me. I didn't even know that such a thing as peace was possible. I had never seen such a thing. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, even if your life seems to be going pretty well according to most metrics that we use in, in you know, the American value system, I want you to know that I know that you're not at peace. I want you to know that I know that your heart is in a state of chaos, confusion, disorder, despair. And I want you to know that Jesus Christ came so that you can escape that, so that you can have peace, not just here and now, but peace forever. And in order to enter into that peace, you're going to have to experience a little bit more chaos on the front end. It's going to hurt a little bit. You're going to be a little bit more confused at first when you start having to turn away from your sin and figuring out what it looks like to follow Jesus. But friends, let me encourage you. It is a worthy investment. If you have any more questions about what it means to follow Jesus and turn and receive his peace, you can come talk to me after the service, talk to Blake, talk to any person here. I'm sure we can help you have that conversation. Point number two, the God of holiness. Now this point's going to seem fairly obvious. This is going to be the one where you're like, ah, I don't know if we needed four points in this morning's sermon. We could have just had three. He didn't have to say point number two. Although you would never say that. You know, sometimes the things that are most obvious are the things that we actually most need to hear. So here goes. You ready? God will sanctify us completely because he cares about our sanctification. I can say it again a different way. God will make his people holy because he desires their holiness. See what I'm saying? Nothing really earth-shattering there, right? Let's talk about it. This may seem obvious to some and maybe all of us in this room, but not all self-professing Christians understand this very basic concept that God wants his people to grow in holiness. We all know that the gospel says, come as you are. We love to preach that gospel. You don't have to wait to figure everything out to come to Jesus. I say the same thing, same thing to people with CrossFit. Oh, I'll start doing CrossFit once I get in shape. I think you've misunderstood what's supposed to be happening here. CrossFit helps you get in shape, right? You don't come to Jesus when you get everything figured out. You come to Jesus and he figures everything out for you. But what, what many people don't know about the gospel is that it also says, come to Jesus as you are, but you can't stay that way. If you truly come to Jesus, you will not stay that way. Some people view this call of Christ, this gospel call, as a call to a sort of spiritual complacency. And in reality, God, when he calls us to himself, what he says is something more like this. Come as you are, broken, damaged, hurt, sinful, and let me fix you. Let me make you better. Let me heal you. Let me make you into the image of Jesus Christ. Now, to misunderstand or to neglect or to reject this aspect of the gospel is to, is to do 
real damage to the vital organs of the gospel. Just listen to the way that Paul talks about sanctification in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 26. Just listen to the language. Christ loved the church, and he gave himself up for her, okay? So the love that Christ has for the church led him to go to the cross so that he might sanctify her. The Bible says that Jesus died for us, for his people, so that we might be sanctified. That's how much God cares about our sanctification. This is a really, really big deal. So as we talk through this morning's text about God's faithfulness and his, his sovereignty and sanctification, I just want to make sure that we don't get ahead of ourselves. I want us to pause and to make sure that we understand that God is committed to the sanctification process of every single person for whom Christ died. That's the whole purpose of predestination. I know that uh, you guys have been through a little bit of rigmarole about reformed theology and, you know, ooh, predestination. Can we say that? What's in the Bible? What does it mean, though? It's scary. I've been through that process. It's weird. When you read predestination, read about predestination in the Bible, and you actually like look in the text and you, you don't just show up for a fight. You start seeing weird things. Like it says, in love he predestined us. Oh, well, it must be pretty important. Right? He loved us, therefore he did this for us. Well, I, I should really figure out what this means. You also see things like what we see in this morning's text. Which leads us to Romans 8.28 where he says this. You know the verse. He predestined us. Why did he predestine us? To be conformed to the image of his son. You know, election, predestination, and then a little bit down that chain, there's this process of sanctification, us becoming more like Jesus. Part of God's eternal plan for his people is that they be conformed to the image of his son. Now, if you're here this morning and you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're a believer, but sometimes you wonder if you can make it all the way home. Friends, remember this. Jesus died to purchase your sanctification. Jesus did not give his life on the cross. He did not exhaust the wrath of God on himself on the cross just to leave you behind on the battlefield, to let you get halfway home and then give up. No, he died to purchase your entire sanctification. When I was about four years old, I was over at a friend's house who had a pool if you believe it or not, uh, that guy was the coolest guy in the neighborhood, right? Somehow he was everyone's friend. He had a pool, and uh, one day when nobody was around, I went and I jumped in the deep end, didn't know how to swim, immediately sunk to the bottom. And uh, his dad, somehow, some way, saw it, jumped in the pool, grabbed me, snatched me up, swam back up to the top, put me there on dry ground. He saved me from drowning. Now, if a man is drowning, you can even imagine yourself in this scenario. If you are drowning, and you're sinking, sinking, sinking down to the bottom of the pool, and then someone jumps in to save you, and they grab you, and they're swimming up, up, up towards the top of the pool, and right before they go to lift you out of the pool, they let you go, and you sink back down to the bottom. Would you say that you were ever really saved at all? You're not saved until you are up and out of the water 
safe and on dry ground. Well, in the same way, friends, a God who came to only bring us halfway home, to only bring us right up to the water's edge and then let us go right before we enter into the majesty and glory of heaven, friends, that is not a God who has saved anyone. The God that we serve brings our sanctification to completion. Point number three, the God who keeps. Most of us, uh, if we're being honest, we, we fear transparency. Even though like in our modern day, transparency has somehow arrived at like the top of the virtue list. And like it's the only thing that we value. People are just honest to a fault and we think that, we think that to be the most commendable attribute that any, any person can have. The truth is, is that we still fear it. We feel like if we open ourselves up to others and we let them see who we really are, that we're going to be exposed, right? We're going to be vulnerable. We feel like Adam and Eve, you know, God sees them in all their sin and they want to hide from that. That's how we feel. We believe that if the people who are really close to us ever got to know the real us, they'd probably walk away from us. And to be fair, we feel that way because a lot of us have experienced that. We have opened up. We've been vulnerable. We've let people see us, our sins and all, our pockmarks, our warts. And when they saw that, maybe they did walk away. They cut ties. Human relationships, they are fickle, uh, delicate, superficial things. Most human love is conditional, right? But then there's Jesus. He knows every bad thing about us. Not just our quirks and eccentricities, not our little foibles that are kind of annoying but kind of cute and endearing at the same time. No, he knows everything about us that we don't want anyone else to know. He knows everything about you that you hope no one ever finds out. He knows. You want to be like the woman at the well. You want to have an encounter with Jesus and keep your sins hidden from him. But Jesus knows. We can't hide anything from God. And yet he doesn't leave us. He knows every bad thing about us. And he doesn't give up on us. He doesn't cut ties. He doesn't walk away. As a matter of fact, he does the opposite. The more sinful we are, the more he pushes in on us in love. Why? Well, in verse 24 of this morning's text, Paul tells us. He explains why Jesus is so doggedly committed to his people. And it's just two simple words. Because he is faithful. He who calls you is faithful. Two simple words. Or three. He is faithful. Now, in order to understand what Paul means when he says that God is faithful, I want us to ask some questions of ourselves this morning that I think will pretty quickly help us understand uh, what faithfulness is and whether or not we're hitting, hitting that mark. So I want to ask you first, do you think that you are faithful? In order to answer that question, let's ask some more questions, some, some diagnostic questions. I assume every member of this church that has joined this church has signed a church covenant, like in our church. Yes, yes, everyone's nodding. 
Well, in our church, it's written into our, state, into our church covenant that we will be assembled together with God's people, and we understand that to mean that uh, unless we're providentially hindered, we will be at the Lord's Day gatherings. We also understand that to mean that we're basically going to be together with God's people whenever we can, as often as we can, because this is our family, right? So let me ask you, friends, have you been faithful to that aspect of your church covenant? Have you been here when you could have been here? Every time that you could have been here? I'm not trying to lay a guilt trip on you. I know what it's like to work a long, brutal week, to work a late Saturday night and feel like on Sunday morning when you get up, you just can't do it. You just can't go in. But there was a covenant, and you did sign it. Have you kept it? What about on your job? Have you ever stolen company time? Have you ever taken something from the supply room that you didn't have permission to take? Have you ever been engaged in any kind of unethical behavior that if your boss knew, he would in some sense consider you to be unfaithful? What about in the gospel ministry that God has given you, whether you're a pastor or a member of the church? an evangelist, a women's Bible study teacher, can you say that you've never been too afraid to share the gospel with someone because the fear of man in your life was just so big and it just took over? Do you think you've been faithful to the great commission that God has called you to? Would you look at all of your time and talent and treasure and say that you have maximized that in faithfulness for the sake of the great commission? What about stewardship? Can you say that you've used everything that God has given you in a faithful manner for the glory of his name and the good of his people? If you're married, have you remained faithful to your spouse? Now listen, I I know right there you're just going to stop and go, Sean, of course I've remained faithful. I would never cheat on my spouse. But remember what Jesus said about fidelity. It's easy to pat yourself on the back and say that you're a faithful husband or wife because you've never had an affair, but Jesus says that the affairs begin in our hearts and we lust after other people and no one can never really see that. So I'm not asking you if you've had an affair, I'm asking if you've been faithful. Now, the wrong response to these questions that I'm asking you this morning is for you to sit there and grade yourself and be like, ugh, three out of four, yes, I am basically faithful. You know, and if we're grading on a curve, I'm probably even closer to, I'm not good at fractions. I don't know what's beyond three-fourths. <laughs> Rather, I hope your response is that we could ask a thousand more questions. And as you answer those questions, I, I think you, you'll see that the answer is, no, I'm not faithful. My answers to those questions are, no, I'm not faithful. Not the way that I should be. But then there's God. God is completely faithful. God has never promised to do something and then changed his mind out of laziness, spite, or fear. God has never made a commitment that he has failed to keep. God has never started something that he was not capable of finishing. God never overcommits and underdelivers. God does not break promises. God is not like us. We are unfaithful, he is faithful. Friends, if our sanctification depended on our faithfulness to God, then no one would make it to heaven. 
man, the sweet news of the gospel is that our sanctification does not ultimately depend on our faithfulness. Ultimately, it depends on God and his faithfulness. Paul makes this kind of contrast very explicitly clear in 2 Timothy. He says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Why? For he cannot deny himself. Throughout the entire Old Testament, God is pictured as the husband to his bride, the nation of Israel. And his bride is unfaithful to him time and time again. But you know what? God never leaves. Even when he's angry and it seems like there's like a separation, you know. Israel's off in exile, out of the promised land. God never, ultimately, gets so mad that he rips up the marriage certificate. He never takes the wedding ring off. He's never so mad that he just calls the attorney and draws up the divorce papers. Now, over the course of my marriage to my wife, Amber, uh, better half, sorry she couldn't be here, you'd like her a lot more than me, uh, we have had the opportunity to open up our home and minister to uh, a lot of drug addicts. That's the world I came from. We've uh, had many of them stay in our home where we try to love them and serve them and evangelize them and disciple them. And if you've never lived with a drug addict, an active drug addict before, let me tell you, it's a real treat. (laughs) And uh, it can really, all sarcasm aside, it can be really rewarding, but it can also be pretty unpleasant, right? We have been stolen from, we've been lied to, we've been manipulated, deceived, embarrassed. But when you're carrying out this kind of ministry, you cannot decide to continue to serve drug addicts based on them acting like drug addicts. If you say that you won't serve them when they act like the people that they are, then you'll, you'll never serve them, right? There has to be something beyond their behavior that you're committed to in this ministry. It has to be grounded in something outside of their worthiness. Well, friends, we are sin addicts. And God's commitment to helping us become spiritually sober has to be grounded in something outside of us and our worthiness. And praise God, it is. It is grounded, as we just read in 2 Timothy, in the very nature of God himself, who cannot deny himself. The God who is faithful to keep all of his promises, even the promise to save wretched sinners like us, who make it about as hard as it could possibly be to love someone. Numbers 23, 19. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? In verse 24 of this morning's text, Paul says that God is faithful to whom? Go back and look at it real quick. Who is God faithful to? He who calls you is faithful. Friends, God is faithful to all those whom he has called. Now this calling, this is the language of election. This is God saying, listen, I had a plan for your life, and Noah, I know Joel Osteen probably has that copyrighted. God has a plan for your life that he's had since before the foundations of the world. And he chose you. And then he predestined you. What, what does that mean? It means he set all of existence up in such a way as to bring about that that calling that he initiated before the foundations of the world. He, He crafted the universe in such a way as to bring about this result. 
And then he sent his son Jesus Christ to die for you. And now he sent his spirit to indwell you, to seal you, and to take you all the way home. When you read a phrase like, you know, he who calls you is faithful, don't just pass over that. What, what Paul is, and this loaded language from Paul, the God who chose you before the foundation of the world is not going to renege on his promise, on his plan for your life. Friends, let me tell you, God's commitment to display the attribute of his faithfulness through you is really good news for you. It's the anchor that scripture tells us to cling to when we become fearful or anxious about whether or not we can make it to the last day. Listen to the words of Hebrews 10.23. Let us hold fast. Right? So don't let, go to, don't let go of Jesus. Right? Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. You see how practical all this stuff is? The attribute of God's faithfulness is something that God wants you to cling to, to white knuckle. You just, as tightly as you can possibly cling to something, cling to that if you feel like you're wavering in your faith. Unfortunately, in all too many churches, we're taught to cling to things that will fail us, that will only cause us to waver more. Cling to your good works, cling to your past experiences, cling to your church tradition. Cling to your family lineage. That's not what God says. Cling to the one who is faithful and who has made a promise to you. If you're here this morning and you feel like you're wavering in your faith, but you very desperately want to hold fast, you do your part. You fight, you strive, you push, you put sin to death. But do all of that knowing that the only reason that you can hold fast to God, the only reason you can hold on to him, is because he is holding on to you. Amen? Point number four, the God of prayer. Excuse me, the God of power. The God of power. At the end of this morning's text, Paul says, he will surely do it. Let's look back at it one time. It's so weird expositing such a tiny chunk of text, but... Let's do it anyways. He who calls you, in verse 24, he who calls you is faithful. Then just as a quick little aside, just right at the end, just right to cap it off, he will surely do it. How can we be so confident that God will surely do it? How can Paul be so confident that God will surely do it? be able to maintain his faithfulness towards us. I can certainly plan to remain faithful to my promises, but that doesn't mean that I actually have the ability to do so. That's my plan. I always desire to remain faithful. It doesn't always work out. Why? Why don't, why don't what a, what's going on in me that I don't have the ability to, to be faithful in this way? Uh, other than CrossFit, I also do jujitsu which is something I also have to tell everyone as soon as I walk in the room. And uh, when, I, when I was mm, kind of halfway into my jujitsu journey, I made a commitment that I was going to do three competitions in three months. You know, I'm really going to learn from this, and it's going to be a good experience. And right before the first competition, which I've been training very hard for, I sustained a not-so-insignificant injury. And uh, I was willing, but my tendons and ligaments were weak. <laughs> 
And I think that's a pretty good picture of our inability to fulfill some of the promises that we make, our inability to be faithful as we would like to be. You know, you remember Jesus told the disciples, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The disciples didn't want to fall asleep in the garden. They wanted to stay awake and do what their master commanded. They wanted to pray, but they were limited. Their spirit was willing, their flesh was weak. The spirit is willing, but Satan is scheming. The spirit is willing, but the world is very much working against us. So we can strive to remain faithful, but as human beings, we really can't have the kind of confidence in our own faithfulness that Paul has in the faithfulness of God. So what's the difference between God and us? Well, the difference is the power of God. We're weak. God is strong. We're frail. God is durable. We're finite and limited in our energy and resources, but not God. He can create universes like that. It's nothing for him. He could do it again tomorrow, and it wouldn't even, he wouldn't break a sweat. Friends, do you understand that the God who has saved you loves you with an invincible love? Do you understand that the God who has saved you and has promised to sanctify you has promised an unbreakable promise to you because of his power? So what is it that's got you feeling like on the last day you will not be found blameless? What in your life right now do you feel like is so powerful it's too powerful for, for God? Is it your anger? I don't know why, just oh, every time my boss or I come home and my wife and kids are, and I just can't help it. I just feel like my anger is taking over. Like I just can't beat it. Is it your greed? You know, Karl Marx, he thought the world ran on greed. It's the force that drives all of humanity forward. Maybe it's lust. Maybe you really want to stop watching pornography, but you just can't. You just feel like it is the most powerful thing in the world and you cannot break that chain. Friends, I can speak about the power of God so confidently because I'm not just looking forward to the day when God's power will be fully displayed. I'm also looking back at the cross when the power of God was fully displayed. Jesus Christ was dead. I mean, dead, dead. Three days in the grave, dead. No way we could arrange this in such a way that it only seemed like he was dead, but wasn't really dead. That kind of dead. The Bible says that he was raised by the Father. Not only that, but the Bible says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. In the same spirit of God that raised Christ from the grave, if we are in Christ, has raised us up with him and has seated us with him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Friends, I remember what it was like to be dead, as dead spiritually as Christ was dead in the grave. Drugs, alcohol, women, power. That's all I cared about. That was my whole life. I felt like nothing could beat that. I felt like nothing in the world was more powerful than those desires. And you know what? When Jesus came, they crumbled. They were like nothing. I thought they were these unbreakable iron chains. The strongest man in the world couldn't break them. 
And that's true. He couldn't. But God could break them easily. And he did. This is the God that we serve. You know, when Jesus was on the cross, he uttered the words of the psalmist in his greatest moment of weakness. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you feel that way this morning? Do you wonder if God has forsaken you? Do you wonder if, do you wonder if he can really do it? I mean, what are we doing here? Are we playing church? Just come here, we're going to read and pray and sing, but you're just kind of going through the motions. Then you're going to go have lunch afterwards, and then you're going to sit down and turn on the TV, and then you'll probably be back for Wednesday on Bible study. And then you'll come back again for another Sunday where maybe you're encouraged or you learn new stuff about the Bible. But deep down in your heart, you wonder about this God that you serve. Is he really there? Is he really faithful? Can he really do it? Friends, yes. Yes, he can and he will. So if you're here this morning and you're so discouraged, you just feel like you could die You feel like the psalmist. You feel forsaken. Friends, let me tell you, look away from yourself. You won't find any strength there. There's no encouragement to be had in your attempts to save yourself. Look to Christ. Look up at the cross. Look what Jesus has already done. And I think you'll find that your confidence and your ability to make it to the last day has nothing whatsoever to do with your strength and everything to do with the God who has already accomplished that on your behalf. As Paul was sitting in chains, a prisoner of the Roman Empire, soon to meet his maker at the hands of his executioner, he wrote these words to one of his beloved churches. He said, I am sure of this. It's real. It's real. It's not a game. I'm sure of this. I'm giving, my life depends on this. My eternal hope is grounded in this. I'm giving my entire, I'm giving everything because I believe this to be true. I am sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Friends, you can be certain too because our God is a God of power. God began the work God will finish the work. He will surely do it. Let's pray. Father, remind us again. Keep this truth in our hearts. Let it linger as we go back out into the world. Keep us from trusting in our own power. Help us to remember the promise of faithfulness that is found in the gospel. Help us to keep our eyes on you, what you've done for us on the cross, and the promise of what you will do for us on the last day. We pray this in your son's most holy and powerful name. Amen.